Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm your host, Kim Arnold, and welcome to Truth Love, where we discuss life's issues and the truth of God's word and love without judgment or condemnation. Welcome everybody. This is Kim with Truth Love. And uh, today I'm excited about this second uh, part of a series that we are doing on the truth about systemic racism and the consequences of it. And last week we talked about systemic racism in the criminal justice system. And this week we are going to talk about um, systemic racism in the healthcare system. And if anybody out there is wondering why that is the case. It is because, you know, again, the show is called Truth Love. And I want to speak the truth and in love. And, you know, there are some conversations that are just difficult to have, but nevertheless, we need to have them. And that's what I said, you know, last week, right? And we're in a time in our nation where things seem to be so divided People sometimes may be afraid to talk about things in mixed company. Well, I want to open up a platform, a dialogue for us to be able to do that. You know, especially um, if you are a believer and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we have got to learn how to sit down and come together and talk about the things that affect our lives. And so I think that's really why I've been led to do uh, this series. So again, this is the second part, and we're going to talk about uh, racism in the uh, in the healthcare system. And so today, again, I'm excited because um, she is back with us. Uh, just an incredible young lady, and I say young lady, but her credentials would make you think that she's an old lady, <laughs> but she's not. She's very young. Very brilliant. We've got Dr. Emmanuel Acusic with us, and she is the Assistant Professor of English and Africana Studies and the Co-Director of Africana Studies Program at Muhlenberg College. She is a scholar of the 20th century and contemporary African-American and American literatures, global black literature, Holocaust literature, genocide literature, human rights literature, in comparative race and ethnic studies. And Dr. Cusick did her interdisciplinary and research that it explores the intersections of literature, race, genocide, and human rights violations. And it had a particular focus on how black populations have been, have used rather the concept of genocide to write about anti-black violence. Dr. Cusick received her PhD and her master's in English from Princeton University, along with a doctoral graduate certificate in African-American studies. And she received her BA with highest distinctions, or as some universities would call it, summa cum laude, and a Phi Beta Kappa key uh, from the University of North Carolina. So we are welcoming her back today and she's going to enlighten us some more like she did last week. And and I'm going to say at the start of this, if anybody hears any latency, background noise or anything, please just bear with us. We're in the midst of COVID, so we're actually in two different locations as we uh, 
record this dialogue. So thank you. And again, thank you for joining us today. Dr. Cusick, are you with us? I am. Thank you so much for having me again, Kim. And thank you to your listeners for listening me to me again. I'm yeah. excited to be here. No, thank you for coming. And, uh, you know, I, I got to say this. So, you know, sometimes you have inside information. And I happen to know that Dr. Cusick is probably busy 20 hours out of 24. And so I say that because I want to really thank her for coming and being a part of this show. Thank you so much. So I oh, thank I'm, you for having me. Absolutely. I'm I'm going to jump right in, right? Um you did and I asked you this the other day we were talking uh you had done a series uh, you know I've been teaching it and you've done a series recently um at at your at your institution at your job uh called genocidal medicine. And so I saw that and I went googling it and I was like, "Oh, I can't find that." Well, that was because that was your title, right? So I thought, oh, this is amazing. So with that being said, tell us what uh, this means in relationship uh, to the African-American communities in healthcare. Um, also, you know, I want you to tell us, uh, you know, what makes an event or an event to be classified as genocide? Yeah, absolutely. So the series that I did at work was actually a broader series on COVID-19 and race. So it was looking at how is COVID-19 disproportionately impacting communities of color. And genocidal medicine was the event that we did around black communities. And I came up with that term based on a combination of the research that I've done prior. As you said, I look at the ways that black communities have used the term genocide to try and end anti-black violence, but also thinking about how does that particularly apply to healthcare. So essentially, regarding COVID, we know COVID is killing black people at disproportionate rates. Now, the virus obviously is not targeting specific racial groups, right? Right. But the systems that have been put in place that are killing black people at that are allowing COVID to kill black people at disproportionate rates, those were put in place systemically. And if we understand those through the lens of what I'm calling genocidal medicine, not just COVID, but the broader healthcare system, that's not to be to sensationalize or to assign right. blame. But what it does is it emphasizes that these systems are man-made. And if they're man-made, they can be taken apart by humanity too. And so that's something I want to keep in mind as we go through this, what the, the whole point of labeling this as genocide is, the whole point of talking about racism in the system is to understand that when, when we talk about things like disproportionate death rates from COVID, it can seem inevitable, right? It can seem hopeless. But if we understand, well, actually, there are a series of systems put in place by humanity that are making black people die at such high rates, then we wow. think, oh, okay, well, then we can stop those systems. So- that's just one thing I want to put in place and put out there in terms of the goal of this whole conversation. And then your second question about what is genocide is actually an excellent, it's an excellent question because I would say through my teaching, the word genocide is probably the most, not only misunderstood term, but mm -hmm. it's a term that people think they know the definition, but it's actually not what the definition is. So when we're talking about the definition, 
what I'm talking about is the United Nations definition. So under international law, what is genocide? Okay. So in December of 1948, the United Nations created the Genocide Convention. So prior to this, the term didn't exist, which a lot of people don't realize because it's so common in our language. We talk about World War II and the Holocaust, and we talk about genocide pretty instinctually, Uh the Cambodian genocide, the Rwandan genocide. But the term didn't exist prior to 1948. Now, the crime existed, but there was no name for it. So 1948, December of 1948, the United Nations defines the concept, and this is the definition. This is verbatim. Any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And here are the types of actions that qualify. A, killing members of the group. B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And finally, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So this definition is what I'm working with when we think about the healthcare system and black Americans. Wow. So, you know, I want to say something here. Um, That is very interesting because, um, you know, I've gone to Rwanda probably four times, right? Mm -hmm. After the genocide and and helped to assist. And I've told my listeners before with with, uh, building a home for women to teach them, um, you know, skills after the genocide. And I always thought, to be honest, that when that term was used, it meant that a certain number of people had to die, like genocide, like, okay, does it have to be X amount before it's qualified, you know, Mm -hmm. as this, but under this definition, uh, this international definition, that is definitely not the case. So I I think your title of genocidal medicine is amazing. And I will say this, and then I'm going to, I'm going to keep going and, and I've got some questions for you. You know, I was at the, the doctor, um, you know, maybe last year and my doctor, she's a white doctor. And I was telling her about having to go to the emergency room for something and how it wasn't the best experience, but, and she said, well, do you think there was racism involved? And I just looked at her because I just thought that was a very progressive question. I, you know, I said, well, why, what, why are you asking that, me that? And she said, you know what, Kim, it happens. And she said, I would like to know. Um, as a doctor, I want to know how you're being treated in other facilities because it was a facility close to home. So I thought that to be amazing. So, again, I'm just going to say this. When we talk about systemic racism – we are not just talking about things that happen here and there and today. We're talking about how this has happened after the emancipation, which Dr. Cusick talked about in our last week's episode. And these things have been perpetuated over the years, right? So I've got a question for you, but I'm, I'm only going to ask it if you're ready for it or if you've got something else to add before I jump back in with another question. Yeah, I can follow up really quickly on what you said about, well, a couple of things, but your comment about numbers and thinking that there has to be a numerical threshold met for genocide, that's one of the most common misunderstandings of the term, that and that there must be 
sort of total annihilation of a population, or at least a concerted plan to annihilate the entire population. But as we can see, the definition clearly says in whole or in part. And so you have when this when this term arose in 1948, by 1951, a group of civil rights leaders, the Civil Rights Congress, had filed a petition called We Charge Genocide, where they were trying to charge the United States with genocide against African-Americans to try and end lynching mm, against African-Americans wow. in particular and other systemic violence because wow. they thought, OK, now we have perhaps an international law that we can turn to. And so lynching is absolutely genocidal. That is absolutely destroying a group in whole or in part. And then mental harm. Lynching is absolutely causing both mental right. and physical harm. And then the healthcare system, part of the petition, it wasn't just lynching. They also talked about black Americans, a whole host of things. But one of the aspects was black Americans being denied health care at white hospitals and being forced to either underfunded black hospitals or even in fatal situations like gunshot wounds or car accidents being denied treatment at white hospitals. Wow. And they they said if you do this enough, it is systemic. And it then under this definition becomes genocidal. And we have versions of that. Now the underfunded hospitals problem continues. And as your doctor was pointing out, there is explicit and implicit racial bias in the healthcare system that leads to a whole host of healthcare issues and death, all of which falls under the definition under the UN of genocide. Wow. Now, you know what I find amazing that um, here you have uh, the civil rights leaders, uh, you know, looking to get lynching declared genocide. And right. for our listeners who may not know, there were thousands of lynchings in the mm -hmm. South uh, back in the 40s, 50s, um, to the point uh, they had called on the president of the United States to please come help us, especially in states like Mississippi. It was so commonplace that you had um, blacks, African-Americans walking down the street just in fear of their life. And I say this because I've yep. done a lot of research. And, and for anybody out there who's a jazz or a, a blues music person, Billie Holiday actually did a song called Strange Fruit. And it got her blackballed from a lot of things. And that song was specifically about how common it was to go through the South and see, you know, black people being lynched and hanging from a tree. So when yeah. we, again, when we talk about uh, systemic now, you know, I, I wasn't aware of like what you're saying that you've got civil rights trying to go to the international powers to say, help us because of lynching. That's, that's, that's pretty powerful. So yeah, and a lot of other systems too, but lynching was what they centered on. Yeah. Yeah. Understandably. So just because of what was going on at the time. So, so let me ask you this. Uh, can you give me some aspects um, of the healthcare system that, that have been genocidal? I mean, do you have some examples of, of that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the aspects is what we were just talking about with black populations being denied access to sufficient health care, whether it was on a 
sort of a regular basis. So for any sort of healthcare issues that cropped up, black populations, as we know, during Jim Crow, were denied access to white hospitals. White hospitals were the hospitals with funding, with equipment. That problem continues today in terms of black hospitals being vastly underfunded. But also the Civil Rights Congress petition has multiple examples of black people literally bleeding out and being taken to white hospitals because that was where they were closest to. Wow. And just being left on what the story of one man, he was literally left on the floor to bleed to death. And these are not isolated incidents. This is a genocidal system that is happening for decades um, across the board, across the United States. So particularly in the U.S. South. So that's one of the ways. Another way that genocidal medicine has been practiced is through medical experimentation on black populations. So in line with what you had said about this all, this stems back to slavery, pre-slavery, honestly, through colonization Uh and the origins of the transatlantic slave trade. One of the myths that came out of enslavement or that predated enslavement that was used as part of the justification for the ways that enslaved people were treated was that black people didn't feel pain or illness in the same way as white people. This was used to justify whipping them at such in such brutal ways. And it was used as justification for experimenting on them with no pain management, nothing to find cures for white populations to the, and we're not talking about, I mean, there's no way to talk about human experimentation that isn't disturbing, but we're right. we're talking about experimentation that was literally killing people, all to find cures for illnesses for white people. Well, you know, when you say that, I, I'm sure that most of our listeners that are listening to this, for me, uh, you know, what comes to mind is the uh, Tuskegee experiment, right? right. And, you know, how does this fit into that uh, this whole genocidal, uh, medicine, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It fits, unfortunately it fits perfectly. And actually the black press, which black newspapers at the time wrote about when Tuskegee was exposed, they wrote about it, not just, Oh, look at this experiment, but they explicitly called it genocide. And again, tried to get the United Nations to recognize this as genocide. So, The facts of the experiment, the full name of it was the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. So it began in 1932, and it included 600 black men. Approximately two-thirds of them had syphilis, and about one-third of them did not. None of them knew what they had. They were told, all of them, that they were being treated for bad blood. And they were told that in exchange for being treated for this, they would get health care and a series of other things, including burial insurance, which was a huge debt that a lot of black families um, went undertook because burial and honoring your ancestors is very important in black communities. But black communities are also struggling a lot financially. So burial insurance was a huge help, as well as they thought they were receiving health care. Wow. What actually happened is that they were being studied to see how the disease would progress and to develop a cure. Now, the the fact that they were being studied to develop a cure for white people in the first place is bad enough and that they weren't told what they what they had, they didn't consent to this. They thought because they thought it was something else entirely that they were being treated for. All of that is bad enough. But the most 
I don't want to call it the most genocidal, but one of, yeah, the most genocidal aspects is that even after penicillin was discovered as a cure for syphilis in 1947, not a single one of the black patients received it. Not a single one. So what the researchers did, they let the disease progress. The study went on until 1972. Wow. So that they could document what would happen. Now, these men, they went blind. Some of them died. Additionally, because they did not know they had syphilis, they passed it to their wives, who many of them contracted syphilis. Many of them gave birth to children with a whole host of health issues, stillborn children, and miscarried children as well. And the study only ended because a whistleblower ended it. So it it was going to continue. And this medicine was withheld from all of these people to see what would happen. And as they died, it was just documented. Wow. I, you know, that just left me speechless. And I, like I said, most of our listeners would have probably heard of that experiment. I have myself, but when you put those facts out there like that, that I didn't know that, uh, that, that is mind boggling. And again, you know, it's what Dr. Cusick said Uh, in the last um, episode, and I believe in this episode, you might have said it, you know, we're not bringing light to any of this stuff to cast blame. This is informational for people to know uh, what it means when we talk about systemic racism and, and why or how, rather, that it has been perpetuated over many, many years. So, You've got Tuskegee. Do you have something else that you could share with us? Another example? Yeah, I wish I didn't. But unfortunately, there are multiple examples of this type of experimentation, which, as we've said, clearly falls under the definition of genocide. If you think of causing harm to physical and mental harm to members of a group, um, deliberately inflicting that harm, killing members of the group, forcibly preventing births within the groups as so many of these women had stillbirths and miscarriages. So, but Tuskegee, as you said, is unfortunately not the only example of this genocidal practice. So I learned about what was called the Cincinnati radiation experiment from one of my colleagues and mentors, Professor Roberta Meek, who is a history historian, a history professor at Muhlenberg College. And She's absolutely fantastic. I've learned so much from her. And the Cincinnati radiation experiments were from 1960 to 1971. And what happened was 88 cancer patients were enrolled in this study. Of those 88, the all of them were, or most of them were, low income, but the majority, about 62%, were black. Now, this is notable for many reasons. Of course, the majority in and of itself is notable, but... In particular, black people were only 13% of the population in Chicago. So to have this study where you have 62% yeah. of the, you know, of the participants are black, that is intentional. So these patients think that they're being treated for cancer and that they're undergoing radiation treatment for cancer. They were not. What was happening is that radiation was being distributed throughout their entire body in massive quantities to see how much radiation soldiers could endure in a nuclear war. Oh my gosh. So wow. these, the treatment is not targeted. It's not actually treating their cancer. It is just being applied kind of haphazardly to see how much they can they withstand to protect white soldiers and come up with ways to protect white soldiers from radiation. 
many of the study's victims died within a month of the experiment. I would imagine so with all that radiation. Wow. I, I mean, we know how damaging radiation is when it's targeted for cancer cells. So imagine what it does when it's just applied to your entire body, including places where you don't have cancer and in massive quantities. And no, not a single patient knew they were part of an experiment, not a single one, nor did any of their families. And this not only did the study kill a lot of them, but they didn't seek other treatment because they thought they were being treated for their cancer. Gosh. So that killed people too. And like Tuskegee, it ran for 11 years and only ended because of a whistleblower, actually an English professor at the university of Cincinnati uncovered it. And without that, it would have continued. And there was a class action lawsuit brought by the families in 1994. And a federal judge said this this is compared or she sorry she compared the deeds of the doctors to the medical crimes of the nazis during world war ii i i can see that look not only do i see that when you talk about you know the thought that came to me was you know you think of mass radiation it's like you know somebody having an atomic bomb dropped right there in front of them and being exposed um to that type of that type of radiation so that is just you know, I told 11 years, 11 years just the for the sake of uh, doing an experiment on people, I guess, who we could say they were just marginalized. Yeah. Uh, the, obviously, the, the medical um, professionals that were administering this obviously did not care uh, for these people and not only not care uh, to just lie and say, hey, we're treating. Could you imagine thinking you're getting treated for something? You take the medication, go home, you get worse. Now that happens with some things, right? Right. You get worse before you get better. And so, you know, you think, okay, I'm not going to go seek other treatment. But then couple that with, um, I know we were in the 60s at that time, 61, but couple that with racism within the medical field anyways, you know. So where are you going to go? Because you think you found a trusted place, Um, Like you said that you were, you know, to be treated. So, well, and that continues. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. There was a little lag. Yeah. The, the multiple studies have been done today that have shown that the distrust for the medical profession that has resulted in black communities since Tuskegee and since the Cincinnati radiation experiment has had real detrimental effects on black people's health because so many black communities are terrified to seek medical help when they have an issue because they don't trust the medical system. And it's important to part of, as we said, we're going over these facts to show that these fears are real. They're grounded in reality. They're not hysterical people just saying, I don't trust doctors. We're talking about this 1971 and 72 for the end of these studies. This is post-civil rights legislation. Exactly. This is recent. That is very recent. Black people being afraid to seek medical treatment is a very valid and legitimate fear that is having real impact on black people's health care today. And we have to, we have to address it. We have to acknowledge the reality of that. Yes, we do. There is a, a a large uh, distrust within the black community, wouldn't you say, uh, of the medical field. Um, And whether it's, you know, whether it's real or imagined, I always say, even if it's imagined, it's real, right? It's not, when I say it's real, I don't mean 
it's reality, but in your mind it is. So you don't, you just don't know. Um, and it still exists. I mean, I could stand here and tell you of several of my African-American friends that have been misdiagnosed, right? Um, over and over, repetitively, one for over 15 years. Um, and then ended up seeing a African-American doctor and he telling her, no, um, if you don't get surgery like now, you're going to die. And uh, mm-hmm. all, all along had been going to a a doctor and being told, hey, everything is perfectly fine. And so those are scary things for the black community. So I want to ask you this. I want to close with with this, if, if, if we could. You know, I, I was reading an article in Forbes, right, that says systemic racism makes COVID-19 much more deadly for African-Americans Explain that. I just got the headlines. You know, I didn't dig into the minutia of the article. Can you explain what 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 does that mean? Yeah, there are goodness, there are unfortunately so many reasons, all of which stem from these decades of or honestly centuries of injustice in the healthcare system. So the article that I think you're referencing, because this is the one that I have seen circulated that is really excellent, was written by Christian Weller, and it's called Systemic Racism Makes COVID-19 Much More Deadly for African-Americans. And he lays out very brilliantly multiple reasons. So one of them, for instance, is that African-Americans have worse underlying health conditions to start with because, not because they're neglecting their health, which is a myth that is perpetuated, but because they're more exposed to health hazards than white communities. So for instance, black families are more likely to live in communities with worse air quality and worse water quality. So for instance, the Flint, Michigan crisis with the polluted water and lead in the water and all sorts of horrific things in the water, that was actually not an exception for black communities. Weller says that was the rule. This polluted water is found in so many communities that are predominantly black. And I bet that goes back quite a few years so when again when oh, we're absolutely. talking about systemic we're talking about that that goes back quite a ways oh, yeah okay go ahead absolutely. I'm sorry oh no nothing to apologize for absolutely it's really important to establish how long term the longevity of all of this and so additionally we have issues with housing segregation and inequity that have actually led to health issues and COVID. So we have black children are more likely to suffer from asthma. What does this have to do with housing segregation, right? Well, Weller points out that segregated housing often has black families in overcrowded substandard housing that has high rates of exposure to vehicular pollution, fecal matter from rodent and insect infestation and mold spores. This leads to very high rates of asthma in black communities, especially in black children. Asthma is one of the most fatal conditions to have regarding COVID-19. If you have asthma and you contract COVID-19, you are much more likely to die. Additionally, this also has to do with housing. Black families are more likely than white ones to live in what are called food deserts, which is which are areas with little to no healthy food options. This leads to things such as diabetes, which is another mm, wow. horrific condition to have and if you end up getting COVID-19. And the thing is, 
there are so many stereotypes. Last time we talked about stereotypes regarding the black criminal. There are also stereotypes about black people just not caring about their health, not caring what they eat. But people aren't recognizing the living conditions black communities have been forced into since slavery and the the restaurants and grocery stores that are around there. You will be very hard pressed to find a Whole Foods or any sort of affordable healthy food options in neighborhoods that are predominantly black. And that has been strategic. That was planned. And it has had really damaging effects. And that all culminates in a lot of predispositions to COVID that can kill people at higher rates. Then you also have, for black people who do catch the virus, they are in a really bad situation because they have fewer healthcare resources. So black hospitals, for instance, so that's hospitals in black neighborhoods, they are the most likely to be underfunded with ventilators, with protective equipment, with medication. So when we have these pre-existing conditions that make black people more likely to get the virus, and then when they do get the virus, the treatment options they have are much more limited than those that white, than white people have, honestly, and those in affluent neighborhoods. Well, and so housing has a huge correlation with uh, this. And again, I, you know, we've heard it from, um, at least I know the new administration coming in to office about where they've spoken about, um, I don't know about the current administration, but the new one has spoken about the, the uh, disparity uh, between African-Americans or even just any black and brown people, I think, you know, mm-hmm. so that would be Latino and, you mm-hmm. know, anybody of color, uh, you know, that Native uh, Americans, yeah, Native Americans that, you know, the risk is so much greater. And, and so some of these facts that you're pointing out definitely tells us, you know, why. And again, I want to tell our listeners as we're wrapping this up, we, I could talk to Dr. Cusick for hours. And trust me, I have before. Um, one, because she just has a plethora of in, information uh, number one, she's just, I mean, she's brilliant in this, uh, in her field, and there's so much. So I'm going to make available uh, some different links uh, to information that she has shared with me that I'm going to put on the Truth Love website if anybody is interested. And again, I want to say, as we've said before, this is informative. You know, it's Truth Love. Got to talk about truth, got to talk about this and love. Nobody's blaming, but anything. But I tell you what, the truth is a very powerful thing. One of my favorite scriptures says this. It says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's funny because a lot of times when you hear that scripture quoted, it says the truth will set you free. And that's not correct because it won't. You have to know the truth. (laughs) You know, you have to know it and then apply it, right? So, truth in of itself doesn't matter if it's not known. So that's why we're talking about the truth of uh, systemic racism uh, today in, in the healthcare system and, and how it's been perpetuated again for a long time. This, hey, listeners, you guys know this. Uh, it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. This just didn't happen over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. This would have started a couple of hundred years ago. So, Dr. Cusick, as I wrap it up, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners um, today? 
Yeah, I think that the what I would close with a couple of things related bouncing off of what you just said is to to really emphasize how urgent this is and how documented it is too. This isn't just a couple people told their story. So and we're making, you know, broad generalizations. There was a 2014, 2015, 2016 medical study um, multiple medical studies that revealed black people, for instance, are far more likely to receive pain medication than white people. And uh, this 2016 University of Virginia study. Wait, wait, showed far that, more likely or less likely? Which? Oh, I'm sorry. We're far more likely to be denied Nine. pain okay, medicine I okay. than white people. Yeah, I'm sorry. So far less likely to receive it for the same okay, gotcha. symptoms. Mm -hmm. And this, this, a 2016 study by the University of Virginia followed up on this and found that when they polled medical students, about half of the white respondents believed that black people had duller nerve endings than white people, which takes us back to that myth from enslavement. And so wow. this, that translates and so to wait, can not I just, just say, pain. Can I say this? They, they thought that, but what did they base it on? They believed just this was something that was kind of just part of their consciousness as they grew up it was there was a series of true and false questions and wow. they believed it was true that black people had duller nerve endings and then they were more likely also to prescribe weaker medications or no medication for black people who reported the same symptoms as white people and this isn't just for pain either pain is what this study was focusing on but all sorts of illness so heart disease things like that and it's devastating when you think of the effects, but it's also important to, as you were saying about truth, I'll conclude with this, to dive into the truth of this for ourselves and our own implicit biases. So when these, when these medical students and doctors who had been surveyed in these studies were confronted with the results, so many of them were horrified. Wow. Because these were, sure. a lot of them were people who are committed to trying to eradicate inequity and who believe in equality and they did not realize that they were doing this. But wow. when they saw side by side what they were prescribing black patients versus white patients, some of the studies said doctors literally broke down. They wow. were so horrified. But that truth that was then revealed through those studies has probably saved countless lives since That's then right. because they're so aware of it now. And so some medical schools now have implicit bias courses which have been documented to really, really help reduce the incidence of this. So unraveling the truth is not just important on a theoretical level, but it has real tangible life-saving results. Oh, no, that's, that's very good. And that ties right into that scripture because when I was saying truth does not set you free in of itself, right? You have to know it. Right. And now here yeah. these doctors knew the truth, right? And it changed lives. I, I find that, uh, fascinating i find all of your uh information that you sent over just awesome look i want to tell our audience today again we had this uh this it's going to be a three-part series so next week i'm going to finish this off and we had this today just to as i said to share the truth and then to say hey what are we to do you know we just heard of some medical students being shown truth and how they responded and then what they did. Who's showing you truth in your life about whatever the issue? But specifically, is there anybody talking to you about truth, about racial issues? You know, we've been in a year or two of really heightened 
uh, racial conflicts. And I think it takes sitting down and talking to one another openly and honestly. And sometimes those conversations are not pleasant, right? But knowing the truth um, will always will always help, you know, it, it really does. And I say that for all of us. So I'm going to ask our listeners today, look, ask, you know, you take your time and ask yourself, what is my part? What do I need to do? What am I responsible for? And next week, I am going to end this series, and it's going to be called The Divided Saints of America. And the reason it's called that is because the church is still so divided along racial lines. It's, it's divided, you know, on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Uh, we're divided on how we vote, what we think. And we think different things because we have different, very, very, very different experiences is part of it, right? So, yeah, yeah I mean, I just, I, I just, you know, and as I, Dr. Cusick would know, I am no respecter of person uh, like her, for sure. Um, you know, at my dinner table is some of every, I always call it the United Nations, right? It's just some of everybody, black, white, Asian, because I have all of those different types of friends uh, in my life. So I'm appealing to all of us. And next week, I'm going to appeal to um, my brothers and sisters in the church. So Dr. Cusick, thank you for joining us today. We so appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing the podcast. This is so important. So thank you. And thank you to all of your listeners as well. It was great to be here with you. Thank you for joining us today on Truth Love, where our mission is always to speak God's truth in love as we follow Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life.